Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach. How about you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, we need a we need a Niners uh, drop for equal equal punishment after a Sunday. Uh, I'll tell you what, this is not the show that we need Blog Talk to go ahead and collapse on us because we got all kinds of new moving parts going. Now we got webcams, we've got uh, different high definition. Uh, video conferencing going on we've got screen and screen action we i'll tell you what if it falls apart or unravels on this one we won't know who to blame we are stretching the limits of our bandwidth (laughs) putting it to the maximum test ah yes indeed all right welcome to roach on recovery where are we at today today is september 19th 2017 that's right we are creeping up, Mr. Producer, on our three-year anniversary. It's a big one. Yep. Lasted three years. Um, let's get let's get right to it. We got a lot of stuff to cover, not a lot of time. All right. All right, your boys, your Jets, your Giants, you're on. The trifecta. The trifecta. That's always a bad weekend. Um, um you might as well call it three blowouts because uh, they were essentially, even though the Giants was only twenty three ten, it was essentially over. Um, uh, the Cowboys are still looking for oxygen. After losing in Denver, and the Jets are uh, the Jets are on the clock. <laughs> the Jets are on the clock. Yeah, the Oakland Raiders are, are a really really good team though, so we can't. Uh, they they definitely outclass the Jets there. But a little surprised about um, the Dallas game from an outsider looking in. 
I know I'm Denver's not. defense is Super Bowl caliber. They have been. That's who they are. But that said, uh, their offense is not very good. They they don't have a you know their quarterback is still widely unproven, and so a lot of pressure if Denver is going to win is going to be on that defense. But you imagine like any good defense, you could wear them down because they're going to be on the field so long because their offense isn't very good. Um, and that may play out to be true, I guess, over the course of the season. Everybody is still relatively fresh now. Um, but, you know, hey, Dallas, uh, one of the best lines in the game. Really, really good young running back. Good young quarterback. Um, I guess I just expected a little more, uh, even if they were still going to come up on the losing end, a little more out of them in that matchup. Well, let me give you a little bit of quick insight. You notice how the line played against the Giants in week one? Sure, yeah, okay. So that's a division division rivalry, division foe, uh one of the top lines in the league, if not one you know, if not well let's call it top three, the Giants okay. defensive line, especially against the one. And yeah. they were able to uh hold their own, if not, you know, I mean, almost four hundred yards of offense. This going against Denver, they they had numerous things going against them going into this game, and all of them came to pass. A the letdown after a major division you know rivalry game number one. Yeah, yeah. Number two, going into the Mile High Stadium, getting used to playing at that level, because if you notice, their Denver's division rivals don't have a problem playing against. Look at how San Diego played. Sure. Against them. You know what I'm saying? So their interdivisional rivalries teams don't have a problem with them. So it's not like they're a, like a monster killer destroying everyone that comes forth type of defense. Right. The, the Cowboys just weren't ready and just got blown out. And like I told you, as it was – or I was on tape delay, so it was probably over by the time I texted you. Um, you know, a shellacking like that is very good in my opinion. Uh, it's funny. You and I share that opinion. We're of the same mindset. I told everybody, and this is a different sport, but I believe you and I are on the same page as far as the mentality is concerned. Um, last season, the everybody made a big deal of the opening night in the NBA because the Warriors had just signed Kevin Durant and how are they going to play together and nobody's going to beat them. And sometimes you might buy into your own hype. And opening night, they play San Antonio, and they get blown out by 30 points against San Antonio. And, oh, my God, and everybody and all the fans and all the pundits, and, oh, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to gel, or we blew them up. To, and I said, you know, this is the best thing that could have happened to the Warriors. Not only getting beat by San Antonio, someone you assume is gonna, you're going to have to get through in the end, but getting blown out because – what it does, in my opinion, is it is like a wake-up call uh, for you not to buy into all the hype that is surrounding you. And, and you know what? This is still professional sports, and you could get beat on any given night. You're not good enough just because of the names on the back of your jerseys to walk out onto that court and, and be handed the win. And so, to me, kind of the same thinking with you got, you know, everybody, ESPN, NFL Network, doesn't matter, the offensive – line of the Dallas Cowboys is the biggest bully in the league and with that running game and 
you can start to believe that a little bit. And sometimes it takes you getting your tail whooped to say, you know what? We, we still need to put forth max effort. We haven't arrived. Nobody's arrived. You got to bring it every Sunday. Right. So I agree so, with that. Yep. And I also directed you to, uh, and I don't know if you did this or not, but to Google the fourth and one in the 95 uh, Eagles game. I think it was the uh, second to last game of the season when they were. Um, yeah. And they had fourth and one from their own like 20 yard line and they went for it and got stuffed, but the two minute warning had gone off. And so they got another chance and they went for it again, fourth and one and got stuffed again by the Eagles. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, the world was coming to an end. Barry Switzer needed to be fired, blah, 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 but they go on to win the Super Bowl. Right. So, and, and that line was supposed to be the standard, you know, the standard bearer, of course, you know what I'm saying? But they right. got blown off the ball both times. The Eagles had like nine guys in the box. And they got blown off the ball. They had no right. movement. Em- Emmett Smith got pushed into the backfield both times. And so when you watch, uh, I'm sure you've watched America's Game uh, okay, on yeah. NFL Network. And so when they're talking about that 95 season and that particular play, um, and they said it was really, it wasn't fourth in the yard. It was like fourth in the foot. And mm-hmm. They said they just got blown off the ball both times. So it can happen to a great offensive line. You just, you know, a team has, you know, got your number or or they just, uh, hey. It, you know, what's-his-name has a good um, – I don't know if you watch Undisputed on Fox. Ah, uh, yeah, Shannon Sharp and uh, – Yeah, yeah. Nice? yeah. Shannon Sharp has a good, a good – a good saying about, you know, you know what, the other guys on the other side of the ball are getting paychecks too. Right, so, right. Uh, it can't be total domination, you know, for 60 minutes. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the NFL. And that's all I Very got true. to say. I, I've moved on, and I'm ready for next week. <laughs> but I will be canceling my uh, DirecTV NFL package. <laughs> the NFL like, package I, I do that canceled. like 16 times throughout the year. I swear I'm going to cancel after this after Sunday. Oh man! I'm so pissed. Off. I'm so pissed off. Right? Oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. Oh. You've got a. You've got a team that is if definitely. If there's another try, if there's another trifecta, three of my teams lose. It's gone. The NFL Sunday ticket is in danger. <laughs> oh man, that's good. That's great. Well, at least one of those three, you got a team really. Uh, you know, it's supposed to compete uh, for for it all. So, we'll have to see what happens. Yep. You got to win it on the field. Um, anything else on the NFL, sir, before we move on? I've got nothing on my end. All right. Uh, we do want to uh, extend our um, best wishes, of course, again, to those in Texas and in Florida who are recovering from the two hurricanes. I do want to add one short piece of commentary about the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. There seemed to be a lot of, you know, hand wringing and whatnot um, amongst, you know, the, uh, the newscasters and on various social media, not that I'm trolling social media, but 
I I I do I I must admit the wife does troll social media <laughs> social media. Oh, it happens against all advice, <laughs> and, and 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 wanting to of course respond to every you know thing that's going on, but you can't do that. It'll drive you crazy. But um, we are in hurricane season number one, which goes from June to November, November first, quote unquote. And secondly, if you noticed last year, I don't know if you recall, that there may have only been, I may be wrong, but I think I might be 40% correct if the record checked, that there was only one hurricane that was of note recorded in the Atlantic, which just stayed, you know, didn't endanger anybody. That may be the case, yeah. And... That last year was the year of El Nino, and so we had a great, wonderful, rainy winter out here in California, which, of course, uh, took us out of our uh, 44-year drought, and I'm exaggerating, of course. Right. (laughs) Um, And now we can turn on our taps without feeling guilty and have five-minute showers instead of three-minute showers without feeling guilty, (laughs) etc. Yes, indeed. We don't have to self-report if we left the tap dripping and face face the gulag and all of that stuff. So we came out of our drought because we had a very rainy uh, winter, which is what we normally should have. Our, rain, our winter is a rainy season, unlike you know other parts of the country which have true winters. That's right. Um, but I knew just as in '98 when we had El Nino that the year after that, you know, we were going to be prone because it meant that the Caribbean waters were going to be, you know, a little warmer than usual because of the, you know, the opposite effect. Right. So I'm not, I'm not surprised by all these hurricanes coming. So, but people try and take advantage, you know, with scare tactic tactics and whatnot. And, you know, it is what it is. I mean, this weather has been happening for, hundreds of years it's just we've only been recording it for the last hundred you know what i mean and and following it so very it true is, indeed. It, is, it is it just is interesting as a casual observer though how they all emanate out of the same area by the tropical convergence zone and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just interesting how they you know how they how their direction is influenced by other factors and whatnot and I mean, they're 2,000 miles away, and, and, and they can predict that if it's going to impact a part of the United States. I just find that you know, amazing. It is, yeah. It definitely is. And I know there, there are a lot of people who want to scoff at meteorology being a science and who can't read off the green screen and yada, yada. But all of the research that goes on behind the scenes to get that kind of data um, has come, like you said, has, has come a really, really long way to be able to – uh, even with Doppler radar, right? Because there's programming that goes on behind that. Uh, to be able to predict something like that is pretty incredible. Yep. All right. Uh, we got a very good topic today um, that I want to be able to make sure we got enough time to dedicate to. Um, Mr. Producer, if you can leave me uh, two minutes, I want to remind you on the front end. Two minutes before uh, we do our closing, um, before we close, so add two mm-hmm. minutes to the close, if you don't mind. I, I want to read something 
from a Dr. Harry Henshaw, and I will uh, preface it what it's about before I start. But it does wrap up and tie in a nice bow what our topic is for today. Okay. And that topic is the science of drug use and addiction. Um, yes, indeed. We have spent over the last few years on 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 Roach and Recovery discussing many different concepts and theories about substance abuse. Uh, all of them unscientific, of course. And I don't know about you, Mr. Producer. I'm not. Uh, I'm not against science. I'm not gung ho for science. I'm just, you know, show and prove, and it has to make sense to me, and uh, has to be logical. Uh, right. And I'll go from there. I just don't accept just because it quote unquote comes out of the science scientific community and again I'm nothing against scientific community um, so since we've been talking a lot over the years on about on concepts and theories I thought okay let's see what the science community says about drug use and addiction and then we'll offer our commentary on where we might have issue or disagreement with what they say okay fair yeah, enough that fair works. enough all right fair enough indeed so, why do people use drugs? This is them, by the way. People use drugs for many reasons. They want to feel good, stop feeling bad, or perform better in school or at work. Or they are curious because others are doing it and they want to fit in. The last reason is very common among teens. True that. Drugs excite the parts of the brain that make you feel good. But after you take a drug for a while, the feel-good parts of your brain get used to it. Then you need to take more of the drug to get the same good feeling. Soon, your brain and body must have the drug to just feel normal. You feel sick. So I have to interject an objection there because they didn't uh, caveat that when they say you feel sick because not all drugs, you know, make you feel quote unquote sick, either just as a uh, result of taking them or as a side effect, i.e. like a withdrawal Mm -hmm. from, you know, taking them. So I, I, I do take issue with that. You feel awful, anxious, irritable without the drug. You no longer have the good feelings that you had when you first used the drug. This is true if you use illegal drugs or if you misuse prescription drugs. Misuse includes taking a drug differently than how your doctor tells you to, like taking more or crushing pills to shoot up or snort. Or taking someone else's prescription. Or taking it just to get high. Drug use can start as a way to escape. What the hell's going on out here? I take issue with that. And again, wherever we take issue is because this is from the National Institute of Health. 
And okay. many people many people go to their website for information. Right. So if I'm looking at it from the perspective of someone who's going to look, you know, maybe um, I need to, you know, get some information for a loved one or what have you. And so when it says drug use can start as a way to escape, it should also add that, you know, sometimes it just starts, the use starts out of curiosity, like it said in the opening paragraph. Not everybody knows when they start that the reason that they eventually continue using is because of a means of escape. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree with that. But I think the verbiage they used is not entirely inclusive under that umbrella. I mean, it says drug use can start as a way to escape, not necessarily does. So the idea that they worded it as that that's just one possibility, I can see. What are you, some kind of English teacher? You know, why the author prefaced it like that or or, uh, put it in that kind of context or framework. But generally speaking, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I guess it, uh, that comes down to, and, and I haven't thought about it long enough to come up with a great detailed argument, but one thing that comes to mind immediately, <coughs> excuse me, might be the age at which you start to use. Um, I'd say you'd be hard pressed to get a 13 or a 14 year old who just you know, drank a beer, took a hit of a joint at his first high school party uh, to internalize that and then be able to communicate to you that, you know, yeah, I, you know, I was doing that as an emotional kind of escape. Um, I don't think there's anybody in that age group that even really knows what that is or how deep that can be. Even if it was, you know, that, that was happening on some sort of subconscious level. Um, but like you said, curiosity or peer pressure, everybody's doing it. I want to do it. I want to be cool too. And you might be able to peel back the layers of the onion on that enough to eventually get to the point where someone might say, oh yeah, wow, maybe that was an escape. But as far as that being a conscious decision or on a conscious level, um, I don't, I don't believe at least not at certainly not, uh, yeah, not at that moment. And at least certainly not a hundred percent of, um, of young folks who engage in that kind of behavior are doing so as an escape. There might be a population of even younger folks who would say that's exactly why they did it. They were searching for an escape, but I don't know if they all yeah, fall but into I that think category. That's, I think that's post analysis. Very Could few, be. I've yeah, not yeah, met, yeah. I've not, I haven't met anyone who said during the course of their using and or addiction that they were intellectually aware that they were purposely using as a means to escape. That's something people usually find out after the fact when they take a look back and do a self-analysis of why they started, why they continued, you know, why they became an addict and all that stuff. Sure. They realize that, hey, and they look at their life and things that occurred that, hey, you know, one of the reasons why this was occurring is I was trying to avoid dealing with reality and right. trying to escape my my situation, and this was one of the means that I was using to do that. Sure. No, I, I entirely agree with that, and I would say that would be true for the overwhelming majority. But I do recall in, in our time servicing adolescence, and it was very, very rare, but, you know, maybe one or two, and, and I'll state this just because this is how it was. They happened to be female clients um, 
who actually stated, yeah, even upon the first time before post-analysis that they were looking for a means with which to escape reality because maybe there was a lot of abuse in the home or right. um, and that, that actually was the driving motivator even before analyzing why they made those decisions later on in life. Uh, but again, very, very rare that that was the case. And I think the overwhelming majority is true for what you're saying that maybe a lot of them after taking a look at why we made those decisions might come to the conclusion that, Oh yeah, uh, you know, it was some sort of emotional escape, but um, not on the front end, like you said. Right. All right. So drug use can start as a way to escape, but it can quickly make your life worse. Besides just not feeling well, different drugs can affect your brain and body in many different ways. And here are a few alcohol. You might have trouble making decisions, solving problems, remembering and learning. Marijuana. You might forget things you learn just you might for, forget things you just learned or have trouble focusing. Prescription pain relievers or sedatives. Your heart rate and breathing may slow to dangerous levels, leading to coma or death. Heroin. Similar to opioid pain relievers, your heart rate and breathing may slow to dangerous levels leading to coma or death. Prescription stimulants. Uh, like ADHD medications. Your body temperature could get dangerously high or you may have an irregular heartbeat, heart failure, or seizures. Cocaine and methamphetamine. You may get violent, have panic attacks, or feel paranoid, or have a heart attack. MDMA, like ecstasy or molly. You may feel confused for a long time after you take it and have problems with attention, memory, and sleep. LSD. Are people still taking LSD? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's an old school one right there, but yeah, you might have a couple still out there who wanted to get in still, touch still, with the roots. Still holding on, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. LSD. Your emotions may change quickly, and you might not be a, you might not be able to recognize re- <laughs> uh, recognize reality. Frightening flashbacks can happen happen after. Long after use. Oh, that's a good one. Inhalants. Boy, we have a story about inhalants. I'm not sure we can tell it. Your heart, kidneys, lungs, and brain may get damaged. Even a healthy person can suffer heart failure and death within, within minutes of sniffing a lot of inhalant. You do remember the adolescent client? Oh, I certainly do. I remember my old supervisor... Uh, dragging his limp body from underneath the ramp. That was uh, that was definitely a scene. Interesting times in in, in our history. That's right. Uh, many drugs can also make driving a car unsafe. Marijuana can slow reaction time, making you judge time and distance poorly, and decrease coordination. Cocaine and methamphetamine can make a driver aggressive and reckless. Certain kinds of sedatives called benzodiazepines can make you feel dizzy or drowsy. These effects can lead to crashes that cause injuries and even death. Okay. What is drug addiction? Here we go. Drug addiction is when you can't stop taking the drug even if you want to. Got no problem with that. The urge is too strong to control, even if you know the drug is causing harm. The addiction can become more important than the need to eat or sleep. 
The urge to get and use a drug can fill every moment of your life. The addiction replaces all the things you used to enjoy. A person who is addicted might do almost anything, lie, steal, or hurt people to keep taking the drug. This can lead to problems with your family and friends and can even lead to arrest and jail. You can get addicted to illegal drugs as well as prescription drugs if you misuse them. Drug addiction is a chronic disease. That means it stays with you for a long time. What the hell's going on out here? So I got a problem with that, how that's uh, worded. <clears throat> if it's we, – we agree – that it's a chronic disease. And what's meant by that is that um, more often than not, people struggle with relapse and uh, in in their recovery process. However, again, maybe it's just the way it's laid out where it says that it means it stays with you for a long time. What the hell does that mean? And then it goes on to say, even if you stop using for a while. Well, what, what when they say that, I mean, what, what stays with you for a long time? I don't understand so what they mean that, by that. So that, that is kind of the, one of the premise, a premise for the disease model. Okay, so liken it to cancer, okay, where the ca- cancer can stay with you or will stay with you for a long time. Uh, it says even if you stop using for a while. So consider that to be like a cancer patient whose cancer is in remission, right? And so they're well at that time. And so they go on to say it doesn't go away like a cold. Similar to cancer, right, where you can, you can be in remission or like a volcano that is dormant but the root of the issue still exists and is liable to pop up, you know, moving forward at, at some other point. So this is the whole, um, you know, one of the sta- one of the, um, a premise behind the argument for the disease model. And so being classified as a chronic disease would put it into, um, you know, other diseases that follow that kind of behavior, if you will. A diabetes or cancer or something of this nature where um, it, it can be it can be dormant or you can you can have it under control so to speak but that doesn't mean that it's gone i.e. if it were to crop up again um, you would start using like you never stopped all right well I got a problem with that and we can I'll we'll touch on that a little later mm-hmm. um, it also ties into our uh, the commentary I want to read from that doctor who actually speaks about the disease model. Uh, it, it goes on to say, all right, so that means it stays with you for a while, even if you stop using for a while. It doesn't go away like a cold, which I think is uh, bad language. A person with an addiction can get treatment, but... What the hell's going on out here? Quitting for good can be very hard. Now, what kind of thing is that to say? I mean, to uh, me, they're, trying to, in, they're, they're trying to keep you down. You know what I mean? They're yeah, trying it, to let in, you know it's pretty much hopeless. 
Yeah, I mean, it's an inherently obvious that its recovery is hard and difficult, but it's almost like like you say, they're like letting you know, like, look, you're not going to succeed <laughs> succeed at this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you go ahead and get treatment, but uh, just know that oh. uh, you're pretty much going to fail regardless. Hey, wait, wait till we go on. You'll see it, it, it rams that point home even more. So the next question is, can I use, can I just use willpower to stop using drugs? At first, taking drugs is usually your choice, but as you continue to take them, using self-control can become harder and harder. This is the biggest sign of addiction. Brain studies. What the hell's going on out here? Which we have not seen any of, and I would have appreciated like a link to the studies. Yeah. If if they're going to reference quote unquote brain studies, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying it would have been nice to put a link to them so we could review them to see what what do the studies actually say. And again, we don't dispute what the brain studies are. <clears throat> but anyway, okay, brain studies of people with addiction show physical changes in parts of the brain. And we've talked about that. That are very important for judgment, making decisions, learning, and memory, and controlling behavior. Scientists have shown that when this happens to the brain, it changes how the brain works and it and explains the harmful behaviors of addiction that are so hard to control. So, question. If I stay off drugs for a while, e.g., example, if I'm in the criminal justice system or in residential treatment, will it be easy to remain drug-free? They say... Sometimes people quit their drug use for a while because they're away from triggers that remind them about their drug use. I got a serious problem with that one, with that sentence. I don't believe that to be accurate. Again, it says sometimes people quit their drug use for a while because they're away from triggers that remind them about their drug use. We've always stated that someone who has used drugs significantly, so they had a period of time when they were an addict, that they're, they're always going to remember that period of time of their life. They're always going to remember that experience. Part of that remembrance is going to be things throughout their daily life, weekly life, monthly life, yearly life that may remind them of that experience. doesn't mean that it's going to trigger them. And so I think, and as we read along, you'll see that I think they, in my opinion, my humble opinion, misuse the word trigger or you, yeah, misuse, use it inappropriately, um, and it, and as a result of the misuse, someone reading this on their website may get the wrong impression. So let's go on. Away from home, drugs might be less available. Okay. Once you go back to normal life, you're likely to start using them, using again. What the hell's going on out here? What kind of statement is that? Oh man, that's like that you said. He's hammering the point home. That you're you likely stay clean. <laughs> you're likely to start using again. Not that 
It's a possibility. It's, it's, it's a possibility. It's going to be difficult. You really have to be plugged in. You have to be committed. No, you're likely to start using again. Uh, yeah, more often than not, you're right back at the pipe. Unless you take action to avoid your triggers. Well, I, that's a little bit counter to what we talk about because we say be aware of what your triggers are but develop appropriate coping mechanisms to deal with them. Right. Because it's not realistic that people are going to be able to avoid, avoid hide, right. hide from their triggers. Completely agree. how to cope with them and deal with them. Um, this return to drug use is called a relapse. People recovering from addiction often have one or more relapses along the way if they don't take steps to avoid their triggers. And again... Oh, the sound clip's not working. The, the sound clip's not working. What the hell's going on out here? Again, the misuse of the word triggers, in my humble opinion. All right, so now it asks the question, what is a trigger? A trigger is anything that makes you feel the urge to go back to using drugs. It can be a place, person, thing, smell, feeling, picture, or memory that reminds you of taking a drug and getting high. A trigger can be something stressful that you want to escape from. It can even be something that makes you feel happy. People fighting addiction need to stay away from the people and triggers that can make them start using drugs again. Just like people with breathing, breathing problems need to avoid smoke and dust. <laughs> Now, that's a terrible analogy. It's pretty bad. Now, we agree, I believe, that it makes sense to the best that someone can to avoid people, places, and things, and whatnot. You know, avoid the nouns. Um, However, a person should be built and um, counseled and encouraged to build their coping mechanisms to the point that, you know, if they find themselves in any situation that they can cope with it. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, I mean, you know, you, who knows where you may end up for whatever reason, good, bad, or ugly, and you got to be able to deal with it in a it's positive, your, constructive way. It's your elevator analogy. Yep. Which I, which I love. Cause I think it's so, it's so true. And, and maybe, that scenario might be hard for some to picture because it's unrealistic. You're in an elevator. And I know that you give the analogy to amplify the point, which is true. But you look at something as simple as like a concert. Suppose you're a fan of a particular band or whatever, and it's pretty common knowledge that if you're going to go to a concert, there's going to be people drinking and most likely smoking marijuana. And are you supposed to just uh, amputate that bit of your life, which is something that, you know, music is healthy and people enjoy music and this is a way, an outlet and, and a way that you have fun. And are you just supposed to uh, disregard that part of your life because you can't be at a concert where the people around you might be smoking or drinking? No, you need to nope. be able to have the coping skill or tool like you mentioned to deal with such, such an event or such circumstances. So my 
better analogy actually comes from the fact of growing up in a housing project with elevators that you know go to the 13th floor sure um, and if you get you know happen to be stuck in the elevator with 10 people smoking crack is that going to dictate whether or not you yourself start part- partaking in the crack smoking right and the answer well, just is like, it should it should not just like people with breathing problems need to avoid smoke and dust you should really then if you're if you've gone to a residential program and managed to get clean and sober when you leave uh, live the rest of your life in a bubble essentially that's probably the only way you're going to be able to succeed all right people who have stayed sober for a while either because they were in jail or in treatment, should know that they are at a high risk of overdose if they relapse and take the same amount of drug they used to. That is true. Their cravings may not have decreased, but their tolerance has, meaning their body can't handle high doses of the drug anymore. Without immediate treatment, overdose often leads to death. This is why you often hear about people dying of an overdose soon after leaving treatment. I actually don't hear about that a lot, but uh, I guess they have the stats to speak to that. What makes people more likely to get addicted to drugs? Trouble at home, if your home is an unhappy place or was when you were growing up, you might be more likely to have a drug problem. This is not me saying it, by the way. It's not us. It's the National Institute of Health. When kids aren't well cared for or there are lots of fights or a parent is using drugs, now that one I agree with, um, the chances of addiction goes up. Mental health problems, people who have untreated mental health problems such as depression or anxiety or untreated attention deficit hyperactive disorder are more likely to become addicted. They may have used, they may, might use drugs to try to feel better. And I do somewhat agree with that. Trouble in school, trouble at work, trouble with making friends, failure at school or work, or trouble getting along with people can make life hard. You might use drugs to get your mind off these problems. Okay. Hanging around other people who use drugs. Well, that's definitely true. Friends or family members who use drugs might get you into trouble with drugs as well. Which is how most people start, by the way. Mm-hmm. Starting drug use when you're young. When kids use drugs, it affects their bodies and brains' uh, ability to finish growing. Using drugs when you're young increases your chances of becoming addicted when you're an adult. That is true. Your biology. Everyone's bodies react to drugs differently. Some people like the feeling the first time they try a drug and want more. Other people hate how it feels and never try it again. Excuse me. The scientists don't have a test yet that will predict how each person will react. No kidding. I have met Three people, I think it's three people, one, two, three people in my lifetime that I know personally who um, had the willpower, who stopped using just willpower. Um, One who was using 
came for maybe about two weeks and just said, I'm done with that. Uh, and there was more along the lines for financial reasons, like because of, of the cost. Hmm. And never used again. But, but this person did like to drink. Okay. Okay. Did like to drink. And drinking was an issue within their family unit, i.e., meaning uh, the father drank, et cetera. Uh, you know, weren't stumbling, bumbling down alcoholics, you know, drunks, but, you know, drinking was a normal part of the family environment. Let's just put it that way. Sure. Uh, the other one was a, a friend, a close friend of mine still, who, went, at the time when I went into treatment, they had a religious convergence and stopped using and had, okay. you know, had and however many years that has been they you know they have been on their life new life's track and then the third person is is uh Joe who we all know my best friend um who also stopped uh when I stopped, when I, you know, I went into treatment, and he stopped uh, just by willpower. He just stopped um, and never went back. So those are the only three people I know. I'm not saying there are more. I'm just saying, me personally, those are the only three right. people I know who right. were able to stop via just, you know, I need to stop. So they just they were strong enough in their mind to stop. Yeah, just being able to make that decision based on reflection. That certainly wasn't me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not many. Yep. Uh, can Here's a big question. Can drug addiction be treated? Absolutely not. In fact, uh, <laughs> we, we better close our doors now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, it says, people who get treatment and stick with it can stop using drugs. <clears throat> I'm not sure why I'm suffering from the frog in the throat syndrome today. Uh, they can change their lives so they don't go back to taking drugs, but they have to try hard and follow, their, follow the treatment program for a long time. Not sure what that means. Recovery from addiction means you have to stop using drugs and, the and is, in, is capitalized, Learn new ways of thinking, feeling, and dealing with problems. It's best not to use in the first place. And I could have a smart reaction, you know, smart ass <laughs> comment to that, yeah. but I'll, I won't. If you do get addicted, it'll be a long and difficult road. <laughs> Very long now, indeed. Now, why couldn't they just say, if you do get addicted, you should seek treatment, you should seek help, and then put the links, you know, a link oh. to where you can find out. Well, we've already sta established that the uh, the angle with which this author is trying to present such information is to let you know, essentially... There's no if hope. You, uh, there's no hope, man. If you got a problem, it's done for. So it goes on to say, after you've stopped using the drug, you still have a lot to do. You have to relearn how to 
live without using drugs. You have to work on the problems your drug use cause with your family, your job, your friends, and financially. You have to stay away from people you use drugs with and places where you used. What the hell's going on out here? Better move out of of state. (laughs) Yeah, of course, that goes against everything that we teach because we want you to be able to deal with whatever your reality is. And if your reality is that you're left in the in the neighborhood and, you know, drugs and whatnot are around, you got to be able to survive that. And the, the other reality is it doesn't make a difference where you move to. If you want, yeah, drugs if you want it, you'll get it. Yep. You'll find it. Completely you'll find agree. who the cop man or the cop person is. Do you guys use the word cop in California? Yep. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. You have to learn what makes you want to take drugs again. And then they have in parentheses your trigger, triggers, so you can avoid or work on those things. You may also need treatment for problems that led to your drug use, such as depression, anxiety, or other mental health problems. So, that's what, you know, the National Institute of Health had to say the science of drug use and addiction. And I must say, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. We took issues with 11 things that they had. I think the overall issue that we have is, and, and you can... Give me your two cents on this, Mr. Producer, but if I was to read this as someone who was either looking for help for somebody or trying to get educated a little bit or for myself, because I haven't seen like back in the day, you know, on the back of milk cartons where you can dial 1-800-COCAINE or 1-800-something to, you know, find out about drug treatment. Right. Most people now with the web, right, will go to the Internet. And if I was to read this. I would come away with like, wow, it, it, it basically it seems like it's impossible, right? Like that for you to recover from drug addiction. And when I say drug addiction, I'm including alcoholism and all that stuff. Yeah. And so I may have to, you know, in their comments section, add my comments. <laughs> Right, a, com- yeah, a comment about about the tone and tenor of their that's right. that's article, right. and that it should be more uh, positive in terms of a person's, um, you know, like you can do this if you put your mind to it, and if you get committed and you get focused, that you can do this. And why? And why is it that you can do this? Because millions of people before you have have done this successfully. That's why. And for that reason alone, it's proof enough in the pudding. There's millions of people walking around who are uh, successful, who have successfully recovered from drug addiction and are leading normal lives from anywhere from two years to 30 years plus. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 
maybe I'll rate the article uh, a six and a half since I was didn't appreciate the attitude, <laughs> the attitude of negativity and impossibility, and uh, giving the impression like you know, you know why bother? It didn't say these things. I'm not saying it said it. I'm just saying that you know. <clears throat> And we also major, majorly disagree with their uh, use of the term triggers. And I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Mr. Uh, producer. It appears I have lost Mr. Producer on the audio. What are we uh, – can oh, you hear okay. me now? now? Now I can hear you. Okay, good. Um I was going to say, yeah, it appears... Get your, though, get your foot off the mic button. <laughs> uh, the overall tone of the article or framework or context through which they're operating is one of uh, basically do everything you can to avoid um, addiction or, or drug use because essentially once you're in it, it's a it's a near impossible hill to uh, to overcome, or or it's insurmountable the task to get you, back on the other side of the mountain. You can make the try, but uh, we're not saying that you uh, you might succeed. Yeah, certainly not what I expected coming from the National Institute of Health. Um, I think what we would caution others is, as we've said before in numerous shows, that they're speaking to triggers like the trigger is the actual thing that you have to eliminate. And I don't, I don't know of any program or person that actually counsels people to eliminate triggers versus teaching them to, A, identify them, recognize them, develop coping mechanisms to deal with them. Because more often than not, triggers are, are and when I say more often than not, it could be 5149 that the trigger is not something that you can avoid. I would agree. You know, like what is what if a trigger is your a parent? No, and you know? boy, you're generous saying fifty one forty nine. I mean, from any yeah, yeah, group that yeah. I've ever run uh, on triggers or any um, any kind of relapse prevention packet a client has ever shared with me, uh, triggers are like um, music. Uh, music is a trigger. Relationships or sex is a trigger. Uh, driving nighttime is a trigger. I mean, if you wanted to try to avoid some of these triggers, you might as well move to Mars. You need to take yourself off this planet. There's just no, it's not going to happen. Sunrise and sunset. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. Yeah. So you, I mean, you base. They're basically saying that you have to. Uh, not experience life <laughs> right uh and uh or eliminate 
if you know your life experiences in order to uh, to increase your odds of success. And uh, we wholeheartedly disagree, of course, with that. And I'm not sure what the scientists at the the NIH, National Institute of Health, were actually thinking, um, or where they're uh, gathering that data from to support that language, but uh, we vehemently disagree and will not be paying attention to that. All right, Mr. Producer, I believe we're at the top of the hour. The first time in the, I would say, the last three or four shows that we've actually been on time. (laughs) That we made it on time, yeah, yeah. We were able to get in and get out on this one, but a good topic, definitely, for anybody out there who was listening. And kind of interesting to see, and, I, you know, boy, maybe we need to save conspiracy theories for a completely different uh, episode or maybe even a different station. Maybe we'll come up with a different station. Uh, We'll talk all about government and conspiracy theories, but... Interesting to see the um, the point of view or the lens through which addiction is viewed from a big government entity such as the NIH. And you may think that some of that might, uh, you know, you might wonder why certain policies or funding or decision making in the world of politics is as it is when it comes to our field. True words were never spoken. So, beautiful. All right. Well, we do see uh, we have a caller on hold here who looks like uh, they may be wanting to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment. Uh, We do hope you guys have enjoyed the show to this point. It is our Recovery Sport Time segment coming up next. We are going to take a music break, and we will get to your calls on the other side.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Announcing mode. Six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number. Roadshow recovery recovery support time. Yes, we got a whole bunch of uh, X files, so and we got some decent time today. So I'm going to hit some. Beautiful. The only difference from when we started this show back in uh, November of 2014 to now is that uh, periodically. And unfortunately, the video will pick this up. I do have to put on my glasses now to sometimes read what the hell is written <laughs> on the page. Beautiful. Let's see here. Troy from Daily City. How can I learn acceptance, so self-acceptance, and to be comfortable in my own skin and accept the sober me? Hmm. That is a very deep question. Because in my opinion, my humble opinion, it cuts to the core of what's at the root of someone, um, in my opinion, succeeding in the recovery process. Completely agree. I've always said, when talking to people in treatment, that, and people can test this out, no matter what you talk about, no matter what the subject matter is, what the content is, ultimately, it will always circle back around 
to how you feel about yourself? And if the answer to that is not an affirmative, a positive, then ultimately we can't move forward. Because it is vital that the person reach a point where they're able to look in the mirror and initially like what they see staring back at them, staring back at themselves in the mirror and eventually come to love what they see and uh, experience staring back at them in the mirror. And that's all, you know, that is integral and part and parcel to um, a successful recovery experience. And so the way he phrases the question, which is how can I do that? How can I be learn to be self-accepting and be comfortable in my own skin and, and accept the sober me is first getting underneath anything, any issues that may be impacting your ability to like and eventually love yourself and accept yourself for who you are, what you are, etc. No ifs, ands, or buts. I accept me. I love me. And when you can utter those words and really mean them on a spiritual sense, I guess, Mr. Producer, when you mean them deeply, then you have a kind of like actuated self-acceptance. And in the context of recovery, you are have accepted, you know, the sober you. Yeah. The you that, the you that is, you know, working on uh, – being a you know a sober you, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense actually. And you know what's funny is I would I would st- state to the individual who posed that question that written into that question might be one of your answers to what led you to drugs and to become addicted in the first place. Because I think what's unspoken in there is kind of something like you were touching on or mentioning is that uh, maybe a glimpse into how this person truly feels about his or herself. I can't remember the name that you read, but um, but yeah, Troy. it's a little Troy. OK, so it's a little insight into how Troy feels about himself, um, you know, which might then lead you down some avenues or channels of things that you can work on. Um, you know, that puts you in this predicament to, to begin with, or certainly a, a root cause. True that. Okay. Next up. Looks like Nicole from San Francisco. What helpful hints do you have about staying clean that you recommend to kids nowadays? Well, we will certainly refer you to the National Institute of Health <laughs> for their Scared Straight program. <laughs> and pull up the article on drug use and, and addiction. And let them know to uh, avoid it now, or you will have to just embrace a lifetime of misery. In all seriousness, uh, I mean... 
if we were catching somebody, you know, remember when uh, we used to do uh, speaking engagements at the high schools and uh, other venues where there were always young kids back in the day, of course. And obviously the most obvious thing that we would say is don't get started, you know, right. Stay away from it. You know, don't try it. Don't become intrigued, curious. Don't allow that negative peer pressure to, you know, to, uh, impact you. You know, short of that, I don't know what else you can say to a uh, young kid, especially today. Because the actually the whole key is never doing it at all in the first place. And, right. And, and, and staying away from it. Because once you get in, and this is a serious point, once you get in, it's going to take hard work and effort to get out. Yeah, it's a tough out. You really got to want it. It was very, it's very easy to get in. It doesn't require much in terms of commitment to get in. It requires commitment to stay in, to believe it or not. I, it, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's funny because we try and teach people in our program that the commitment that you had to your addiction, you know, all the things that, about you that um, allowed you to have that level of commitment, Okay, um, to do the things that you did and to to maintain your addiction in the fashion that you did, those qualities were just flip over to helping you, but for a positive reason. So not to get off on a tangent, but. We want you to. Uh, we always say, you know, when, you know, we want you to use those same, that all of those same, you know, qualities and tricks and things that you use to get high. You can use all of those things for a positive reason to, you know, get to get this recovery thing and keep it. Yeah, this is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> okay, that was who was that? That was. Um, Nicole from San Francisco. All right. Are you going to screen that call, Mr. Producer? Uh, uh, well, you said you had a, a good number of X files, so we'll, we'll run okay. some off. All right. Let's go to this is uh, Melanie from Atlanta. Which is more addictive, heroin or alcohol? Hmm. Uh, you know, I would say that's person dependent and environmentally based to be to be honest um because alcohol is always available in society uh by virtue of its uh cultural acceptance and its legality um so it's it's there for people to partake of um heroin you have to go cop illegally um but to say which one is more addictive is person specific in my opinion because I know people who take one sip of alcohol 
and they're off to the and races. That's it. Right, right. And that might you know? speak to a little bit of the biological component as well. But yes. one thing I would add to that is I would say whatever neurological, physiological, or physical strength and addiction heroin has perhaps over alcohol, alcohol makes up for what you spoke about, um, the, the idea that it's readily available, it's societally accepted, more people are going to um, – there's more of an expectation that when you're of age, that's just something you will do as an adult. So, you know, whatever, whatever alcohol uh, lacks in the race against heroin, as far as the, the physical, neurological, everything else uh, it makes up for in the kind of environmental and societal. So, I, and that speaks directly to your point of it being kind of person dependent, which has a stronger impact on that individual based upon where they're at in their life. The other thing is, is that um, I always believed, and I know this is counterintuitive for some people, that uh, heroin addicts um, have a, a more easier time to grab hold of this recovery thing. Now, why do I say it's counterintuitive? Well, I say that because instinctively or intuitively when people think of heroin and and you know that what comes to mind is is you know people in withdrawals and getting sick and you know that then drives the the you know the addiction you know mm-hmm. not want you know the heroin addict doesn't want to feel the effects of the physical sickness that they experience and so they have to use every day and they get to a point where they just have to use to avoid getting sick and that's what it means when we say, you know, you use just to feel normal. Sure, Which is sure. not the case with every drug. Right. Okay. It's the case with some, but not every, not all. Um, however, if the heroin addict, and today it's a little bit easier because there are now, you know, medications to assist this process. The, the, the thing about the heroin addict that at a certain point that's driving their addiction is, you know, this – the, the withdrawals that they feel if they don't continue using. So they're in a catch-22. I want to stop, but I don't want to experience this. And I always call it paying the piper. You got to pay the piper. In some way, shape, or form, you got to pay the piper. But today, with all that available in terms of medications to you know, help deal with the withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. but even prior to that, I would always tell the heroin addict, if you can lick the physical side, i.e., deal with the withdrawals and get past them, if you can do that, you are 75% home free. Because then now you only have, in my opinion, 25% to deal with, which is the psychosocial, the psychological, um, et cetera, aspect of the addiction. Because the, 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 the major impasse was the physical addiction, and now we've licked that. And now we just got to face up to the other aspects of the addiction. And so I always would tell people who I knew were um, heroin users that relapsed and had to come back into treatment, they were the stupidest people on the planet. Because to me, once you actually lick it and are able to... Um, get past that physical side, um, 
you're now only dealing with, you know, the emotional, psychological, et cetera, mental, et cetera, um, which is far more easier, and I say far more loosely, um, than the physical. Just end the addiction um, for longer than they would ordinarily stay. And I know that was a long-winded answer. Well, I think what you, you said was on point. Yeah, I think what yep. you said was on point. All right. Real quick on the next one, and I'm going to go to the phones. Uh, Butch from San Francisco, what drugs are abused the most? All of them. I don't have any stats. I don't have any stats on you know which ones are leading the race, and I think it may it, there may be geographic uh, considerations. Um, you know what's big on what's big on the West Coast and the mid in, in the Midwest. You know, methamphetamine. What's right. big along the Eastern Seaboard? You know, opiates, cocaine. What's big all over the country? Marijuana. So they're all abused equally. I'm sure one 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 of the other may be re- leading the horse race, but ultimately we don't care. We just know that they're all being abused. All right, let's go to Mike from Burlingame. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aria. Good. How are you? Good. I'm just uh, – you were just speaking of marijuana. I'm curious if you think that um, marijuana can be mentally and or physically addictive. I personally don't think marijuana and, – and to my understanding, it has not been proven yet that marijuana is physically addictive. Mm-hmm. It can be, however, psychologically addictive, yes. Okay. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was well, short there you have that. <laughs> there, there you have that. That, of course, has been an ongoing uh, debate item. And it it wasn't always a debate. It was always, you know, back in the day. And by the way, just for the record, whenever I say back in the day, and in, in, um, in reference to our subject matters, I'm talking about the 90s. But, um, yeah, marijuana was never considered to be a drug that was physically addictive. It was always known to be a psychologically addictive drug. Um, as a matter of fact, the only drug that was considered physically addicting was uh, heroin. Um Alcohol wasn't – I didn't see alcohol in that class of being physically addicting. Um, it was almost like standing out in a, in a class by itself because alcohol was the only drug at that time where a medical detox was required okay. if you were an alcoholic um, sure. because a person can die from the alcohol withdrawals. Which, right, right. Whereas – the withdrawal from heroin was just uncomfortable. <laughs> right, right. Now, I don't say that to be, I don't laugh and say that to be disrespectful. The reason I say it like that is because 
in, in when we were at Swan Lake, and we knew we were dealing with heroin addicts at the time that were. We didn't get anyone that was dealing, was withdrawing, but because by the time they got upstate to the treatment centers, they had already been through detox and all that stuff. But what we would say is that that withdrawal process. Remember, I said about paying the piper. Mm-hmm. We would say to them that you can't use drugs for any significant amount of time, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, et cetera, and not think there's not going to be some consequence. I'm not talking even external that, you know, there's not going to be some that you're going to, you're not going to have to pay Piper in some way, shape or form. So for the heroin addict, they had to deal with the withdrawals and all that stuff. That was, you know, that's how they paid the Piper. The alcoholics had to go through medical detox and had to deal with alcohol being in their face 24-7 in, in the real world, in the magazines, on the commercials, and what, in the stores, and whatnot. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Um, the you know, people who smoked marijuana for a long period of time and or are still smoking marijuana, um, I don't even think it's a debate anymore that it has impacts on the memory, right? Uh, short-term, long-term. And I think depending on your genetics and hereditary disposition, you know, who knows which one it might be. But, I mean, so you pay the piper in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes you don't, you don't find out until later on in life what that, you know, what that payment is, how it manifests itself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, agreed. So I always say, you know, look, I only, me personally, I abused drugs for six years. I'm still pissed off at, to this day. <laughs> uh, that I wasted six years of my life six and spent so much money. <laughs> six years and a lot of money you'll never get back. Yep. Rub it in, rub it in. <laughs> um, but I am under no illusion that uh, you know that there's not going to be if it hasn't happened already, and I'm just not aware of it. Some paying of the piper as a result of those uh, choices mm-hmm. that were made. So. Uh, For example, you had to put your eyeglasses on to read the X Files. Maybe that doesn't happen yeah. until five more years from now. <laughs> there you go. Maybe. Who knows? Absolutely right. <clears throat> and uh, and other things that shall go unstated. Who knows? All right. Let's go back to the phones. We got uh, Charles from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, hi. Hi. Um, should I ask a question now? I have a sure. Question. Go ahead. Yep. Um, we usually meet in groups on a regular basis, and it seems very productive. I'm told that our groups are our groups are like nine or ten people, but they're usually uh, maybe sometimes double that. And it, just out of curiosity, how many people are usually in a group meeting um, normally, and does it make a difference about how? effective that group is and everyone commuting their um, their concerns or where they're coming from because like with with 10 people it seems just about right but I hear it's going to be it's normally larger just you know um it depends on the group mm. some yeah. some 
some groups and gatherings in the treatment environment are beneficial or let's say less is better yeah. because the 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 topic and content of the group um serves the client better when there are less people meaning because more is going to be required of the client in terms of talking and sharing and you want them to have the availability of time to do so the less people you have the more time a person may have to share and talk and what have you however other groups which are still interactive but don't re- aren't time consuming in terms of participation you know there might be little quick bits of participation from clients okay can have you know large numbers of people present because not everybody might be participating but everyone is available to hear the information absorb the information offer input or ask questions or whatever the case may be so it really depends on what the group is, what the goal of the group is, whether or not it's more beneficial to be a smaller size or it doesn't matter how large it is. I mean, we've done groups. I've experienced groups where there's 250 people in the group. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And um, I've experienced groups where there's only five people in the group. So it all depends. Okay. That that dreaded answer, it depends. But that's the truth. That makes common sense. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Mr. Producer, did you go to uh, any of the New York trips? Uh, No. I was slated to go to one as I became a phase four for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had just gotten a job uh, in Redwood City. You got so shot I down? Not, uh, no, I had to shoot them down, unfortunately. Uh-huh. I didn't want to, after just getting a job, I didn't want to have to ask uh, my new employer for time off after just getting a job, considering mm-hmm. I was going to be, um, you know, paying rent and staying up in this area as opposed to going back home. So Right. Uh, we had a squad that was about to tear everybody from the East Coast up, man, volleyball and basketball. We were ready to do work out there, but uh, I, d- I didn't get to make it, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, sir. The, the the mini Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Everyone came from far and wide to participate. Everyone congregated in New York and participated in a day or a couple of days of a sporting event, track and field, softball, volleyball, etc. And if I'm not mistaken, California brought home the, the gold. That's right. On at least uh, two or three occasions. That's right. Yep. So those were the days. The reason I ask is I wanted to know if you experienced, because the people who did get an opportunity over the years to go on the mini Olympic trip to New York, of course, were also, were always um, taken to the flagship facilities upstate in the Catskill Mountains and experienced, as I just told our caller, the uh, facilities that had, you know, 200 plus uh, clients. Right. And 
would have experienced an environment of being in a group like a morning meeting or a seminar or something like that uh, where there were over 200 people present and actively you know, participating in that meeting or seminar. Um, but to just elaborate a little further on his question, I would say ideally um, if you were going to be doing um, – Let's say if we call them like therapy groups where where you where you really want to elicit participation and sharing and things of that nature, mm-hmm. um, I would say twelve to fifteen, no more than fifteen, okay. but you know twelve is about the right amount, and then with 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 enough allocated time, meaning that to me, if you're going to have a group that's going to require a lot of participation and sharing, an hour is not enough time. Um, if you have 12 people, because at the very minimum, you're going to have, you know, four people sharing, I would think. Sure, sure. And if you do the math, four people, 15 minutes, you know, there's your hour right there. So I would want at least an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half um, to give people, you know, ample time to say what they have to say and um, um, whatnot. It's just like the uh, the dilemma we have with Encounter Group. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Encounter Group is now, what, hour and a half? That is correct. Yes, sir. Right. And it used to be two hours long. Um, and to me, that 30 minutes really makes a difference, you know, when you, when, when it's a – you know, an active group, uh, a heavily when there's heavy participation in terms of uh, people um, participating. The last thing you want is to uh, quote unquote run out of time. So, especially if someone is really opening up. Yeah. And you have to then shut them down. And it, mm-hmm. and and you, and the other thing you don't want to run out of time for is a patch up. If people need to oh, time to right. be patch, right. pa- patched up, so you don't have to leave the group raw, exposed and feeling vulnerable. I mean, you can still feel vulnerable, but you want to be patched up a little bit. Um, things put in proper context uh, for further discussion and self-analysis. Um, so, all right, let's go back to our X Files. Jerry from Vallejo has a very, this is a very thoughtful question. What is the connection, and I'm going to read it twice. What is the connection between relapse and the true desire that gives one the compulsion to indulge? Could you read that again? Yes. What is the connection between relapse and the true desire that gives one the compulsion to indulge. So basically, what he's asking is, what is the, what is the uh, connection between relapse and and some and I guess cr- the the craving and urge to uh, to use use again. Well, for me, um, there's an obvious connection between uh, craving urge and relapse 
And so one of the things that we try and ask is at any moment in time when a person is in, in the treatment environment, if they are, let's say after the first trimester, so the a person is 90 days into their treatment experience, and they still experience significant urging, okay, that has to be uprooted. You have to get underneath that um, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. What's at the root of that? Um, and to me, it's the not getting underneath that, that um, or if you don't get underneath that, because cravings can go away just by time and distance. But right. that doesn't address you know, the issue. Because they can also just come right back if you, like, you know, even though we read in our thing today about, you know, if people might go back to the same environment and it may trigger them to use. Well, yeah, that's true if you have, you know, if, if you're in the recovery process and you're not dealing with what's behind why I'm thinking about using, um, why I want have a desire to use and so on and so forth. Because those things are run counter to recovery especially if there is a if you for example if you're in a position where you say i still want to use and that's a real position that people have mm-hmm. they still want to use and that's okay well if you if you still want to use and you you know let's say a force in the treatment or whatever and you then leave treatment well it's more often than not going to live that out you're going to use but let's say that's not the case, and you have a desire to get clean and get recovery and, and move on with your life. However, you still have urges. You still have cravings. Well, if those aren't looked into, addressed, dug up um, through self-analysis and and and, and feedback from peers and, and and by the way that requires gut level honesty when you're trying to get into on and underneath what's at the root of of cravings and 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 whatnot when you are not interested you 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 honestly want to grab hold of your this recovery thing but you are still in the midst of you know, feeling like you want to use and, and cravings and urgings and so on and so forth so we need to get underneath why these things are present. And sometimes they're present because you're just new in recovery. Right? Hey, I'm just a week in. I've just come from the street. So there's no expectation that you're not going to experience urgings, cravings, and whatnot. But I think what we're talking about is when there's been enough time for the mind to flip over and a person says, hey, I, wanna, um, I do want to stop using. I do want to uh, try this recovery thing. I do want to try this. I do want to do this. Um, but after 60 days, 90 days, they say, hey, I'm, you know, I still have cravings. I still you know, have urges and still want, you know, sometimes I feel like I want to use. Um, and what's, what is that about? You got to get underneath it. Got to ask the right, you know, you got to, others have to ask you the right questions and then you yourself have to become 
brutally honest with yourself and answer those questions honestly in order to get an understanding of where is this coming from? Your thoughts? Uh, You know, I have to, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of good points and I have to agree. And I think one thing that you touched on about um, the root, right? Figuring out where something is coming from. And I believe that to be true in a lot of different branches or stems in the field of recovery, generally speaking, and, and in a program that, <clears throat> excuse me, surface work is often the work that is seen. It's done by clients. They maybe have the least amount of struggle with it. Um, stuff that probably they've dealt with in the past on some level or have spoken about in the past on some level. And so they're comfortable um, broaching these subjects again in a new environment with new people. Um, But figuring out where something is coming from, genuinely speaking on a very genuine, deep level, like you said, the, the, the real core, the real root um, is often the biggest challenge that we see clients have to go through. Um, because it, it is work that, I guess, surface work, something uh, like how you might go home and talk to your wife about how your day went, right? Uh, maybe you had a challenge at work or something took place. You had a rough phone call, whatever the case may be. And you can talk about it. And pretty much after you vented it or after you've gotten some feedback or had somebody just listen, you feel a little bit better and you're not going to lose any sleep over it. You're moving forward. I'm, I'm, I'm a annoyingly vague and cryptic (laughs) there you go (laughs) root work when you really open up a can on something that is really kind of planted at root deep kind of level and you begin to disclose some of these things and you begin to do some work and talk about some of these things it's often not something that at the end of a group or at the end of a conversation with a peer at the end of getting back to your roommate before you go to sleep that is just going to dissipate and you're going to feel better about. It's often something that now that it's open, boy, there's going to be a whole roller coaster of things to follow. And you're going to then have to follow up on these feelings the next day and the next day. And maybe when you meet with your therapist uh, next week or two weeks later, you're bringing it up in group again. And it is sometimes, you know, and this is conditional of course, but, based on what it is that's brought up that you're now trying to cope with could take several years before you really get to the bottom of it. And so this is work that at least in my experience and what I've seen, um, a is geared toward how successful a client is going to be, how willing they've been to work on these kinds of things. Um, and B, uh, how difficult it's going to be for a client to, um, make waves in, in this new process that is recovery uh, because, boy, we have a whole plethora of reasons or justifications that we can find as to why we don't want to disclose this. Oh, I don't trust um, the counselor. I don't trust my peers. I don't, and, and, and some of that might be grounded in some truth, and some of that might be valid to an extent, um, but we're really going to hang on to that to the best of our ability to cover up the real cause that we're not getting to it is because we're afraid, um, you know, the work is difficult. Maybe we don't believe that we can change or that we'll ever be able to cope with or address this issue. 
And so we'll find the minor um, kind of the deflections, you know, A, B, or C, as to why I won't get into it, when really it's just daunting. It's a daunting, challenging task. And like you pointed out, really finding out what's behind, what the hell is really going on here, and the root of these things is the only way we're going to be able to, um, you know, climb to the top of this, uh, you know, according to the National Health Institute, uh, insurmountable uh, mountain that that is in front of us. That's funny. Absolutely. Well stated. Um, next question we have from the X-Files is, um, what is the most important thing? This is from uh, Lakita in El Cerrito. What is the most important thing besides a sober support group post-treatment? Um, I would say, and, and this should occur prior to the post-treatment uh, period, that having a structured life, we know what boredom does. To the, to the newly recovering addict. And even though we say we want them to be able to uh, deal with boredom, uh, we certainly don't want your days to be uh, spent doing nothing. Right. So your days should be uh, structured. And when we say that, we don't mean every minute of every hour of every day. Because if a person is purposely going out of their way to just keep themselves busy, um, that's not going to last very long. Um, if you're just doing it to, you know, if you think that's what's going to keep you clean and sober, that doesn't work. Um, so an appropriate level of structure um, and the planning of that, you know, planning in advance of what your structure is going to be, if it involves work, school, or what have you, family, et cetera, and um, sticking to it. You know, people who go through um, residential treatment, if there's one thing that uh, they kind of figure out is the monotony of repetition. Uh, um, yes. And, and, and while they're in the midst of it, uh, it can become aggravating and annoying. However, there's a method to the madness and the reason for this. Because when you move, you know, move on and, and, and progress in, in, in your recovery process, Everyone reaches a point where they're going to be on their, you know, on their own. They're not going to be under the auspices anymore of a treatment program. You're going to be out in society doing your thing, living your life. And you have to have your own structure in place for you, whatever that may be. Um, and so the residential environment, and for us the recovery residence environment, just helps that process of, uh, of understanding and, and being in a structure. And yes, structure can be boring at times, but you know what? When when it gets boring and when it gets monotonous, it gets annoying. It's when you got to think about, okay, what's my analogy here? Well, what would I say if I'm in school? It's, sometimes it's going to be boring, annoying, and frustrating, but I got to knuckle down. Right. What if I'm at work? Sometimes it's going to be boring, annoying, and frustrating, and you got to do the same. 
problems. So that's where self-discipline comes into play, self-control comes into play, etc. So that's what I would say, post-treatment, having making sure that you have a, a good structure in place, an appropriate structure. I agree. Yeah, boredom, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the triggers. Uh, we're we're liking that word from all the research that was done, but one of those many triggers that have been identified that we're supposed to avoid, like a smoker to dust, apparently, or <laughs> whatever whatever we're calling there. <laughs> oh goodness. If anyone from the NIH, (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised my office door isn't being kicked down right now. There's someone on the phone for you, Mr. Morales. (laughs) (laughs) Holy smokes. And they're from the government. (laughs) My goodness. Uh, let's uh, see. You did say how are uh, how we, we on time, sir? I, I was gonna say you did say you wanted to leave. Uh, you know, we've got maybe like five minutes. So you did say you wanted to leave a couple of minutes uh, to bring up an example or something like this at the beginning of the show. Um, then you had also mentioned some sort of bet. Uh, this was yesterday. I don't know if that's something that you need time to bring up or not. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but now would be the time. Um. Let's do the bet real quick. So I, I got a good chuckle to myself when I was thinking about this. About, um, and I don't know, I guess we could do our usual thing of the lunch, but um, of betting which team, the Niners or the Jets, would are playing themselves into that, you know, first pick. Hmm. Now, when I thought about it after I stopped chuckling, I said, well, the Niners have a way better defense. And so that True. may save them in the end. Uh, uh, that depends on how you define save, by the way. Let's just from, say I'm happy, from, to, from, I'm happy to see improvement with losses at the end of the day from where I stand. Well, we're talking about the first pick in the draft, so and, and with the way at least the Jets look, the, light, the, the, the possibility of 0-16 is not remote. True, true, sure. So. Well, uh, the Niners have a very, very tough schedule, right? And so people have already said uh, this. they play this Thursday night against the Rams, and people have already said how important this game for the Niners, and God, if I know why it's even an important game, because there's not a fan out there that came into this season with any kind of expectation other than you're witnessing what is essentially an expansion team, and so you're rebuilding. Uh, but that if they lose this game, it's very possible they go they start the season 0 and 8 or 0 and 9 because the games that come after this Thursday are all very very uh, against very good teams. So, uh, but whatever. Uh, no, you know to be honest, at least the way I've seen our defense play, I would say they will probably end up with a better record than the Jets. I haven't checked the Jets' schedule. Uh, But one thing about our defense, right, is we're already, uh, you know, one of our premier safeties, Eric Reed. He's going to be out for a couple of weeks. He ruptured something in his knee, so who knows how long that is. Uh, Our other starting safety only just got his first action in the last game. He's been out all offseason with a hamstring, and it aggravated again. Uh, Our up-and-coming star, Reuben Foster, high ankle sprain out five to six weeks. So as good as the defense 
can be and looks like they're going to be, they're already dealing with a lot of injuries. So, And, of course, this is not a season you're competing for the playoffs, so it's not like they're going to be in any rush to bring some of these players back on an injury in a season like this. You'd rather them fully recover. So, Besides all that, do you think the team is going to win a game? The The Niners? Yeah. Yeah, I believe they're going to win a game. Okay. Well, uh, I'll bet you that the Jets get the number one pick. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, a lunch at we assuming that they our... Assuming that they own it. I'm hoping they didn't trade it away for something. But yeah, right. They own it. Right. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is I want to uh, I want to read this article. So we're, we're right on schedule. Yeah. Okay. So, a Dr. Henry Henschel of the Enhanced Healing Wellness Center in Miami, Florida. Did you say Henry Henchman? <laughs> no, Henshaw. I'm okay, sorry. all right. It's, I'm sorry. It's Harry, not Henry. It's Harry Henshaw. My, my mistake. Right. Of the Enhanced Healing Wellness Center in Miami, Florida. They're a uh, substance abuse treatment um, organization. So... He wrote this commentary on the disease of addiction, and I thought it was the most eloquent description of it that I've heard to date. So let me read this. All right. Why do so many addicts and alcoholics relapse and for many eventually die? After detox or residential treatment, the tendency, tendency is for most addicts and alcoholics to not do the inner work necessary to experience the transformation or spiritual change. The tendency of most addicts and alcoholics is to work on the physical self and pretend that they have done the inner work required to change their self-esteem, self-image, and even the trajectory of their life. goes to exactly what you were saying, Mr. Producer. The disease, and he has it in quotations, of addiction is never dealt with by the addict or alcoholic. The tendency is to ignore or even deny its existence. The disease of addiction is our negative thought and belief system that we generate on a daily basis. The disease of addiction deals with the addict or alcoholic. When the disease is not transformed, it will begin to fulfill on its initial and original intention, which is the destruction of the addict or alcoholic. The death toll continues to increase on a daily basis, with no authentic work on transforming one's inner self, relapse and possibility, even death, are inevitable. The negative beliefs and thoughts that compromise the structure of the disease of addiction can be changed and transformed with first a willingness to do the work and second the commitment to stick to it even when the process becomes difficult and even painful that my friend is the most eloquent description that I've ever heard of the disease of addiction that is pretty well put <clears throat> that is pretty well put. And just to recap, what he's calling the disease is the negative thoughts 
and ideas and beliefs that the addict has. Not some esoteric thing, you know, but some tangible thing. Um, but not a quote-unquote medical thing, if you will. Follow me? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, of course, that's where the debate lies. When people use that term, quote-unquote, the disease, what are they actually talking about and referring to? And so the debate goes on. But his description of the disease of addiction, to me, matches exactly with what we've been trying to say for years. Well put. Well put, sir. Or Mr. Dr. Uh, Henchman. <laughs> Henshaw. Harry, Harry Henshaw. <laughs> Harry Crenshaw. Well done. Well done. Uh, yeah, no, that was well put. That was well put, and that's a great way to cap the show. If you've got nothing else, I'm going to send us out. Nope. That's all I got. All right, folks. As always, we thank those who continue to give us ongoing support and uh, folks who call in just to listen, call in to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment. We do appreciate it. You guys are the reason we do make this show happen. Uh, We will be back at it again, most likely a couple of weeks from now. Until then, we wish everybody out there a safe and productive couple of weeks and fun couple of weekends.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a 